Welcome to Healthy Tales with Dr. Mondrian Contreras. As much as your health and well-being are important, so is the health and well-being of your pet. Join us today as we break down some of the top treatment and wellness programs that you need to know about in order to help your pet live a fulfilling and healthy life. And now, here's your host, Dr. Mondrian Contreras. Welcome to Healthy Tales, where we discuss current animal-related news, interview experts in specific areas of veterinary medicine, and discuss product information for pet owners in our Product of the Week segment. I'm your host, Dr. Mondrian Contreras, and with me today are my three amazing co-hosts, Dr. Elaine McCarthy, veterinary technician, Tim Hayes, and Dr. Robbie Unsel. Thanks for joining me today, guys. Thanks for having us. We have a great show for you today. I'll be interviewing Dr. Andrew Simpson, and we'll be discussing environmental allergies in our pets. Have any one of you guys uh, seen Dr. Uh, Dr. Simpson with uh, any of your patients before? No. Yeah, he's, he's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> he really is. Uh, and Tim, I think you're, you should probably be the main one. Your pets are dermatologic nightmares. And so uh, yeah. you guys yeah, are really going to need to sit down with this, with, uh, with Dr. <laughs> Simpson on this one. <laughs> he has no idea what he's getting himself into. <laughs> <laughs> Later, uh, I will discuss products uh, that can help keep pets together with their families in our product of the week segment. But let's first, let's get to the new segment in what's the woof? I'm so sorry, guys. All right. That really sounded a lot better in my head this morning <laughs> when I wrote it down. Elaine, I promise I'm going to get some, to a, a really good transition in the future. I promise. It's about so, time. <laughs> <laughs> Elaine, why don't you start off with the latest in animal related COVID news? All right, so there are current concerns for animals being abandoned in China due to incorrect reports that pets carry the coronavirus that can be passed to humans. Um, Greater than 30,000 pets were left stranded in Wuhan after the government sealed off the city in January, and thousands others were abandoned in other cities in China. Um, There's concern that there's going to be a second surge um, as people fear that pets will now spread the virus to humans even though the World Health Organization has said it's extremely unlikely for humans to contract contract the virus from a pet. Um, The Chinese government has even started sponsoring culling street dogs in several cities, um, which is now also stoking the panic that people are experiencing. Um, So there are even videos and people seeing these uniformed people beating and killing dogs on the street. Um, The Humane Society International and other animal organizations and shelters are urging pet owners not to panic and are helping owners reunite and care for their pets that that they had to leave behind. Um, So it's just so sad to hear about this animal abuse and abandonment going on. Um, People are in a state of fear and panic and um, it's just important to know that uh, there are sure there are cases of positive animals with the coronavirus, um, but there's no evidence so, so far to show that humans can get it from cats or dogs. So we need to keep that in mind so that we don't start to get in that kind of that panic state as well, thinking that we need to be doing something with our animals or separating ourselves um, in that situation. I mean, absolutely. Uh, this is the biggest reason why we need to definitely step up. I mean, all us animal care experts and, you know, people just in this area, uh, animal care professionals, to make sure we're spreading proper information. I mean, we have to be uh, in the forefront in all these issues because people are getting their information from their friends on Facebook and they're, they're just getting some of these information, which is just completely inaccurate. And this is the result of misinformation, conspiracy theories. And so uh, this is why we, all of us uh, collectively have to be, 
definitely in the forefront and need to continue to spread the right information and make sure people understand that these are not, these are unfounded fears. Um, and this is just un, uh, unnecessary, definitely unnecessary suffering for a lot of these pets, uh, which has been going on. So uh, yeah, that was a very uh, interesting article and, and just something that we need to make sure we are aware of uh, to make sure people are getting the right information. Yeah, I would, I would definitely agree with uh, how it highlights the importance of, uh, of having the, having the right information out there. Um, certainly we need to see a step up from the social media companies as well to uh, potentially regulate what information um, is, is being um, you know, distributed uh, among people um, on, on Twitter and on Facebook. Uh, and I also think it's important too for us to, to be honest about what we don't know um, as well. We're still in the early stages of figuring out this virus and how it relates to animals. And Absolutely. so while we say right now, there's no evidence that uh, it can be transmitted from uh, animals to people, um, we also need to be honest that we, we, we don't, we haven't really studied it in, in a lot of depth. Um, and so I, I think, you know, as long as we can be honest about what we don't know and try to get the, the right information out there, we'll be in a better situation than what we're in um, right now. Excellent. All right, Robbie, what do you got for us? Uh, yeah, so uh, the news that I'll be covering today uh, is a ruling in the federal district court in Northern Ohio in February, uh, where the quote unquote Lake Erie Bill of Rights was ruled unconstitutional. Uh, this law was passed about one year ago by way of a ballot initiative on a special election in Ohio. Uh, it was initially written, uh, the law was to acknowledge the rights of Lake Erie uh, ecosystem and established irrevocable rights uh, for the ecosystem to exist, flourish, and naturally evolve uh, a right to a healthy environment for the residents of Toledo, and uh, which elevates the rights of the community and its natural environment over powers claimed by certain corporations. Uh, the motivations for the passage of this law were that its supporters felt that the state of Ohio had failed to protect Lake Erie, uh, which is the primary water supply to Toledo. Uh, and in fact, in 2014, Toledo residents were unable to drink their water for three days uh, due to toxic substances found in the water, uh, likely due to local farming practices. Uh, the judge in this case ruled that it was unconstitutional uh, because the wording of the uh, law was so vague and it would have been impossible to enforce, uh, and as a result, it violated due process. Uh, furthermore, he ruled that the municipality of Toledo had overreached its powers uh, since Lake Erie is quite large and contacts other jurisdictions uh, like Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Canada. Um, and so the law itself is pretty interesting uh, because it would have granted a quote-unquote personhood status to the ecosystem, which includes, uh, you know, its flora and fauna and allowed Toledo residents to sue uh, on, uh, on its behalf. And, you know, a major implication of this law is kind of best summarized by the Animal Legal Defense Fund, uh, where they state that rights of nature laws also reflect an evolving legal paradigm of which efforts to elevate animals' legal status are a part. Uh, environmental and animal personhood constructs recognize the intrinsic rights of natural entities and animals, respectively, to exist and flourish in themselves apart from human self-interest in them. Uh, as resources whose worth is determined by their perceived economic or social value. And so, you know, the, the implications of this law are, are quite huge. You know, on one hand, natural entities would become much more, you know, protected and clean, uh, and we would immediately see an improvement in the welfare of any animals that kind of fell under uh, the, the jurisdiction of a law like this. On the other hand, uh, once laws start grant, granting personhood to animals, uh, we will likely see like a, a lot of constraints placed on, you know, the beef, pork, chicken, and dairy industries. Uh, that could very well make it impossible for them to exist. And, you know, as, as veterinarians, we would inevitably see an increase in expenses and liability since most current laws, you know, view pets as, as property. And we also might see a, a decrease in access to veterinary care uh, 
for people that are kind of already on that cusp of being able to afford it um, in, in general. And so it's one of those situations where, you know, I personally, I, I can, you know, I think we can agree that pets do deserve more protection under the law than just property. Uh, but I think as a profession, we'd have to accept this, the, the chain reaction that, um, you know, uh, legislation like this might have on costs and liability, malpractice insurance, and kind of among other things. And uh, I think at least looking forward, um, we're probably going to see more legislation of this variety uh, in the age of climate change and as we start to accept pets uh, more as family. Um, and then also, you know, seeing the recognition of non-persons like corporations or ships as having the quote-unquote personhood status uh, under the law. I mean, absolutely. This is the big question. I mean, should ecosystems have rights? Again, again I, I mean, I, I believe so. But again, you know, when we, we start going down this road, you know, there can be huge debate over um, that because if an ecosystem has rights, then I assume the animals are, are protected under those rights. Thus, the debate begins about animal rights and personhood. You're exactly right. I mean, I fully, fully support welfare, which is different from animal rights. So I completely agree that, you know, animals need to be protected. But I can, uh, but I can see that, you know, if we are going to have any chance really of protecting the environment, and to stop obviously this deforestation and, and all these all these things we're probably going to have to take these types of measures um but it, it is extremely interesting because we start going down the slippery slope here um and uh the biggest thing to me when you made that point you're right about like the beef and dairy industry i mean again that just has huge implications um with these so again it has to be something where um again we again we just have to put a little bit more thought into because we really have to start figuring out a way to start protecting some of these lands uh, and unfortunately, language uh, like this, so should ecosystems have rights? I mean, again, we're starting to get into a way of possibly being able to protect these under the law, which is probably going to be one of the only ways that we're going to be able to save these types of places. But uh, again, we have to settle another debate on top of that because uh, it can have huge, huge implications on a lot of these different uh, animal-related industries. So great, great point. Well, and it's such a strange roundabout way of going about some of the things too. I mean, you know, part of the stated reasoning is you know uh, to protect people's drinking water and it's like <laughs> surely it would be easier just to make a law that says poor people deserve fresh drinking water <laughs> no no we're just we're going to make an environment a person that that's right. the more straightforward go way of doing that well, yeah i, mean, I think they out. had um i think they had had a couple of failed attempts um at at protecting the drinking water and so that's why this kind of these measures were were um, you know put on a, as a ballot initiative, and I think we can get into a whole debate about the effectiveness of, of ballot initiatives in in general because they are kind of a, a tricky uh, way to go about passing laws where you know you're not really having legislators do the the research um, and and sort of fine tuning the wording as opposed to just putting some something on a on, on a you know on, on a ballot and having the voters vote for it because a lot of the people that are going to be making the decisions about whether or not something is passed are quote unquote you know low information uh, people where they might not necessarily understand the implications of a law like this and certainly in this case i think it needed to be probably written by uh, lawyers and people with a little bit more legal expertise since you know the, the wording didn't quite you know uh, hit the threshold of what a, a federal judge felt was constitutional absolutely all right tim what do you got for us well, I've got the most important news of the day. Um, <laughs> they're making a show where Gary Busey oh, is a judge in an animal court. <laughs> Gary Busey pet judge. Um, so I'm sort of of, of two minds on this one. Um, I, on one level, I mean, it's Gary Busey, and he's 
legitimately an insane person. <laughs> like, I don't think that's like an adaptation. I think at least legally 50% insane. And so I think if you point a camera at Gary Busey and, and have him do literally anything, there's probably a decent chance it's going to be funny. On the other hand, I have a long held deep belief that manufactured kitsch is unbearable, which is to say anytime you set out to make something so bad it's good, it's just awful. I'm talking snakes on a plane, Sharknado, all, it's, it's awful. It's unbearable. And so, I'm, you know, you read the press release for this thing and they're like assuring you, oh yeah, it's really happening. And it's just, it speaks to like what the aesthetic of the show is going to be, which is just like, it's so wacky. I can't even believe it happened. And just, it, I think it could be awful. Uh, and I, it's like a missed opportunity to me too, because let's be honest with ourselves. Like I'm an animal person. So I say this lovingly we're all a little weird. It's a continuum. Like, like, you can get some real weirdos in an animal court situation. You don't need Gary Busey there. What you need is a straight guy. You need just somebody reacting to pet people. Um, and, and, you know, I'm speaking hypothetically, but this actually happened. We had Judge Wapner's animal court like 20 years ago, and it was He's, you know, Judge Wapner, I'm not saying he's like a Supreme Court justice, but he has, he's a guy with some level of, of dignity and self-respect. <laughs> and then they just throw him into the world of pet people. And again, I, I don't want to, pet people are wonderful. They're, they're good spirits, but they can get weird. And it's, the humor came from that. It just came from him like trying to run a court while people are like waving bags of poo in his face. Saying, smell this, and then giving him a vacuum cleaner covered in poo that was used to vacuum up poo from a carpet. Mm. And they're trying to determine, you know, this wasn't my dog that pooed on the carpet, it was somebody else's. You can tell, just smell these two things. And Judge Wapner's just sitting there, and you can see his soul leave his body. He's just like, hey, what, how, how, but how is this my life? And like, but then there was also, you know, legitimate court cases. And I think people watch court TV stuff to see kind of how the legal system works. And, and because we all have sort of like a desire to see justice meted out. And I don't know that Gary Busey is going to mete out justice in an appropriate way. I, I think, you know, I think there's going to be a lot of, of, of watching at home just, you know, like yelling at the ref, just going like, oh, come on, Gary, are you, how are you making that call? You know, like, <laughs> I think it's going to be frustrating. <laughs> I, I, I'm, I have concerns. Tim, I, I absolutely agree. I mean, this is so ridiculous. I'm assuming none of this holds legal standing. Uh, but again, it would be full of drama, I'm assuming. Uh, again, one concern always, again, I have is they heighten animal, you know, the fight for animal rights rather than animal welfare. Uh, I can see, um, you know, the more we personify animals, the bigger problem, uh, you know, obviously, this, could, this problem could be. Uh, again, I don't agree that animals should have, um, again, again I, just, I just don't agree that all animals should have the same rights as humans, uh, but of course, uh, they should be protected. Uh, also, we shouldn't make, uh, be making judgment on animal situations based upon how cute they are. Um, I obviously don't know the extent of Gary Busey's knowledge uh, about animal welfare or, <laughs> or, 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 or animals, period. Exactly. So again, so to have laid down judgments on this type of platform is, again, is, is extremely ridiculous. So um, again, some good maybe come of this again, I guess, I suppose that, uh, you know, 
you know, people start seeing that it's not just like one breed that causes a lot of some of these problems um, as far as, you know, violence or anything like that. I guess that could come, you know, come some good. But uh, again, uh, again, I agree basically with everything you said, Tim. Uh, again, this is just going to be quite ridiculous. And I totally forgot about that Judge Wapner. I mean, I totally forgot. Oh, that it was fantastic. Oh, I mean, yeah. 20 years later, I have fond memories of it. And I don't think anybody's going to have fond memories of Gary Busey pet jokes, like 20 years. I, just don't, I, don't, I don't think Gary's got the last one that way. No, I agree. All right. So, guys, I've been, um, again, really, uh, again, for some reason, I've been on, like, a documentary kick. I don't know, lately. And so there was, like, this 30 for 30 documentary um, that ESPN had been uh, beginning, I guess it was, like, earlier this year. Uh, again, I'm just not, now getting around to it, uh, that ESPN uh, did. Uh, again, they just do an amazing job. Um, it's an interesting look uh, at Michael Vick's uh, like rise to fame, and the episode obviously hit home because it brought back his uh, his dogfighting past. Um, they did a good job um, with showing Vick's background, which like helped us illustrate like where in the world he got this idea that dogfighting was okay. Um, I also got to say that um, reliving this ugly history um, of you know what these animals went through was again was really really hard. Uh, Vic got sentenced to two years for dogfighting, which again, interestingly longer, was interesting longer um, than the norm, which at that time was like, and when, when people did like had dogfighting um, or did dogfighting, they usually got like either just probation or like six months in prison. And so uh, to get two years was quite, again, obviously high profile. And, and again, it's like, it's important for me to note that as much as I don't always agree with like animal rights uh, activists, all right, uh, because obviously I support animal welfare, it was really the animal rights activists who were, who were essential uh, in this case. I mean, the attorney general for Georgia wasn't going to do anything about this case and just totally look the other way. Uh, and it was really the animal rights people who put the pressure on the federal government to actually look into this case, which I thought was interesting. And it's, um, uh, it's just interesting to me because, again, like I said, I don't support the, some of the methods of these groups, uh, such as PETA. Uh, but I do agree um, that they can be, again, you know, sometimes a force for good. They, they do have uh, good intentions and, and, again, did well on this occasion by forcing Vic to really face judgment and punishment. I don't agree with uh, these activists on, you know, everything and how they approach things. But, again, I don't, uh, I didn't, I don't want to sh obviously, like, shut down zoos. And I don't think, you know, um, I think I like milk. And so I like drinking milk and, you know, I eat meat. And so I just don't think these things are bad. Um, but uh, I do respect um, I do respect their passion for fighting for animals, and I think we can always like kind of come together and you know you know fight for better lives and animal care for you know I mean, for animals. And so um, again, it's a great documentary, you guys. Did, did any of you guys see this documentary, or do you guys remember that case? Oh yeah, I definitely remember the remember the case. Uh, it was a pretty pretty big deal. Uh, I've not seen the documentary, but I did read the um, the, the article that kind of summarized it uh, that uh, that you'd shared. And it really is an interesting case on different cultural backgrounds uh, and how they approach, um, you know, uh, animal welfare and their, their views on animal. And, you know, as veterinarians, we certainly see uh, differences quite a bit um, in, you know, either generational approaches to animal welfare or, you know, um, uh, gender approaches as well. And it's quite nuanced. And I know it's really hard to make a lot of generalizations, but um, we definitely would see, you know, Maybe an older couple have a bit of a different idea as to what was best for their cat compared to a millennial couple. Um, and I think that this documentary really, uh, really goes into the, a lot of the cultural differences, I think, that, um, that are uh, important to, to, to note. Yeah, it's Excellent. interesting that in uh, that article, he was saying that he's actually fond of dogs when you think about that he actually yeah. loved dogs and yeah. he didn't even think twice about it being wrong for him to have done, had dog fights. 
he thought it was just the norm and he had grown up seeing that happening and, and nobody really hit it or thought of it as a wrong or bad thing. So it definitely is interesting to see kind of how, yeah, automatically we think what a terrible person that he would do this to these poor innocent creatures and he just didn't see at all how it could have been wrong at that point. Yeah, I mean, it makes a great point, um, MacArthur, because again, understanding where people are coming from, again, is not to say that that's okay. We're not saying that. But again, it gives us an understanding and it gives us an, an approach on a lot of times on how to maybe address these issues so we can actually, again, educate you know that, that type of community much better. So again, we don't have this going forward. And so, uh, I mean, absolutely, MacArthur, I mean, great point. So uh, again, guys, Thanks for keeping us up to date in animal related news. You guys are amazing. All right. So when we come back, we will be talking with the incredible Dr. Andrew Simpson and picking his brain about allergies and pets. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. The Vet Bros Pet Education Charitable Fund is a 501c3 organization created by Dr. Mondrian Contreras. Dr. Contreras had twin boys early in his vet school education. He often had to study with his children, which led to their love for animals and desire to help educate others about pets. The Vet Bros Pet Education Charitable Fund stems from this love of animals and education. The Vet Bros Pet Education Charitable Fund's mission is to help educate children and young adults about how to best care for their pets and to help them fulfill their dreams of becoming veterinarians, animal advocates, and animal healthcare professionals. This organization helps provide scholarship money as well as educational seminars to help individuals realize their dreams. The Vet Pros Pet Education Charitable Fund also provides financial assistance towards healthcare for pets in families experiencing various hardships such as bankruptcy and unemployment or natural disasters such as flooding, tornado, or fire. Please visit our website, vetbrospeteducation.org, and consider making a donation to our cause. The future of online TV is here. View exclusive content from your favorite talk radio hosts and new programs that you can't see anywhere else. Visit voiceamerica.tv today. You are tuned in to Healthy Tales with Dr. Mondrian Contreras. We'd love to hear from you on our program today. Please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to vetbrospeteducationcf at gmail.com. Now back to Healthy Tales. Welcome back to Healthy Tales. Skin issues are one of the most common reasons owners visit a veterinary hospital. And one of the main culprits of skin issues is allergies. Allergies cause so many issues with our pets, from the occasional sneezing and licking of the feet to the full-blown hot spots or resistant staph infections. Allergies are so difficult because there's no cure for them. And treatment must be ongoing, which can be really hard for pet owners. Also, allergies can come from so many different sources, like fleas, pollens, molds, and dust. Even when the source of allergies is found, treating the secondary causes of allergies can be even more difficult, which just adds to the frustration. There is no better veterinarian to talk to during this time than Dr. Andrew Simpson. 
Dr. Simpson graduated from, again, my personal opinion, uh, one of the best vet schools in the country, the University of Florida College of Veterinary Medicine in 2009. He went on to complete a grueling rotating internship at DC Aurora and Berwyn Animal Hospital, and then went on to practice for, uh, the general practice for four years. After that, he attended Colorado State University College of Veterinary Medicine, where he completed a three-year residency in veterinary dermatology while also earning his master's degree in biomedical sciences. Some of the research Dr. Simpson uh, has completed involved monitoring urinary tract infections in dogs treated with Apoquil, in addition to studying dogs with chronic absent eardrums. Dr. Simpson is currently a dermatologist at the DCA Aurora Animal Hospital and has spoken around the country. In addition, he has hosted VIN rounds discussing topics such as allergies, ear disease, and treatment of infectious diseases affecting the skin. Dr. Simpson, thank you so much for being here. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for having me. All right. So just a little background. Uh, again, I have known Dr. Simpson for quite a bit. Okay. <laughs> so uh, again, uh, again, I think, I, I think we were, I was stalking him for many years. Basically he went to the university of Florida College of veterinary medicine. Uh, I came there the following year. So I'm a year behind him. Uh, again, we actually actually had the rot uh, rotation, the dermatology together. I think that's where I, I get credit for helping him find his passion. Right. That's right. That's right. <laughs> he went to uh, did his uh, internship at VCA, uh, and then I went and followed him the next year up in the to do my internship as well. So, uh, Dr. Simpson, was there ever a time you just didn't feel safe or scared because I was following you so much? <laughs> no, no, I'm good. And actually, I think didn't you go to the University of Central Florida? I did. I did. So, I followed you. So we. So we could actually trace it even a step back wow. more at uh, UCF, although we didn't know each other then. So we're go, going, it, it keeps going farther. We're going back. <laughs> yeah. uh, but seriously, what, so you grew up, did you grow up in Florida? Yeah, I grew up in Florida. Technically, I was born in Louisiana, but then my family moved to the St. Petersburg area after that. So I grew up there, you know, went all the way through high school. My family still lives there. So it's a you know, great place to go back and visit. Oh, awesome. Awesome. Yeah. And so then, so you did undergrad there and then at, UC, at UCF. And then yeah. you went to, um, obviously again, so you didn't, um, so then you obviously, you went to Florida, obviously the best mm. vet school. All right. That's right. That's right. Go Gators. Uh, that's right. <laughs> so, uh, and then uh, what made you want to then go to, to Illinois? Uh, well, it was love, uh, not for veterinary medicine, but actual love. So my <laughs> wife's, my, my wife's family uh, all lives in the Chicago area. So it was sort of my, you know, I, I dragged her down to Florida during vet school. And so the compromise was, well, as long as you help me follow my dream to, you know, pursue veterinary medicine then we can go back and be near your family so it's it's all for love and family so that, that that's absolutely incredible because it's exactly my wife so we met at the university yeah. of illinois and then i brought her back down to florida where i grew up because i assumed that's where we were going to live we yeah. i had twin boys in vet school and then she was like <laughs> no nope, we're moving back and so that's exactly <laughs> why <laughs> exactly, exactly. We're, we're living these mere lives. I love it. Okay. That's right. That's right. <laughs> so what happened in vet school or during your internship that really helped you want to decide, decide to pursue dermatology? So a lot of it stems from some of the research that I did with one of the dermatologists at University of Florida. They had a, uh, I think they still have, they were retiring some of them, but a whole colony of research beagles that they study allergies on. And, and the primary investigator loves those beagles as if they're her own. So they're not just, you know, kept in a lab and locked up for days on end. So she had basically hired me to help take care of them. So I would socialize with them because she eventually wanted to adopt them out and everything. And so I got involved with that. And then from there, you got involved with more research and, and decided, yeah, I guess this is kind of a cool, a cool thing uh, to, to look into, you know, just, you know, the skin being sort of the window into the rest of the body was, was most intriguing. 
No, awesome. Yeah. And so uh, again, so then, and then when you go into your uh, residency, uh, mm -hmm. again, you go through vet school, you get, and you find out, you get in your passion of what you really want to focus on. Uh, but what was that residency? What's that residency like? Residency was, uh, it was a roller coaster. Uh, it took me a little bit of time to get there. So once I arrived at the residency, it was, you know, a dream come true. And, and what better place to, to go geographically than Colorado? Uh, it's beautiful mm -hmm. out there. It's just as breathtaking as everybody makes it sound. Nice. Uh, so, you know, we had to, we had to drag our family out there. And so it was wonderful to have a lot of hiking, a lot of outdoor activities, but the residency itself, I was just in awe of seeing all these cases that I had read in textbooks finally come to life, you know, walking in the door, I'm like, oh, that's this disease or that's this disease. You know, it's not just, um, you know, these unicorns that you think about. So it was, it was great. And, and the training there was amazing, uh, pretty high concentration on ear disease, which is sort of part of the bread and butter of dermatology. So I had the, the great opportunity of, of being trained by some of the best as far as ear disease goes too. So it was, it was great. It was challenging, obviously having a family and having to study all at the same time yeah. and the balancing act that you can, uh, uh, understand with that but uh, it was it was a great opportunity overall no that's awesome yeah. uh, that's awesome so again you really found your love dermatology again i know that residency yeah. had to be extremely extremely difficult yeah. all right but uh, that that's amazing and so because then you guys have obviously at the end of your residency you have the same type of boards you know um as far as you how you pass and so is your boards is that just like a test or is that also like a clinical also a clinical trial thing that you have to, have to do and do you have to write a certain amount of papers or anything like that as well Yes, yeah, so you have to do a, a qualifying portion before you can even sit for board. So that involves research and publications and writing up case reports. And you also have to do a, a case log and making sure you're seeing enough cases that would uh, you know, warrant sitting for the boards. And the board exam, you know, it was, it was just a little quiz, as I, as I call it. It was two days, eight hours each day. Oh, fun. So, you know, it flew by real fast. <laughs> but fortunately, there wasn't any practical portion you know some specialties like surgery you actually have to perform surgery in front of somebody they didn't test my skin testing skills or you know make sure I could do biopsies but a lot of it is very immunology and microbiology heavy so you really have to understand and know all those nitty-gritty details and uh, so it was the biomedical was science sort of, masters yeah. came in handy quite a bit huh it did oh yeah oh yeah it definitely paid off sitting you know doing some more work during the residency with the masters kind of helped that whole knowledge base a lot Awesome. So you have this unbelievable amount of education, all right? And then you go into practice. And so are skin allergies the most common condition like that you see, you feel like in practice? It definitely the most common. I would say if I, I was thinking about this the other, I think I would say about 80% of the cases I see have some sort of allergy component to them, uh, whether it's ears or just skin or, or both. We do see autoimmune skin disease, uh, infectious disease like ringworm, or we'll see our fair share of scabies. I don't see a whole lot of demodex mites as much, but allergies definitely not a day goes by that half of my patients are at least some sort of allergy, dogs and cats included. And that's incredible. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God. So do you feel that clients really have, um, or do you feel like they have a hard time understanding the depth really uh, of this condition? I think a lot of them understand how, how serious it is as far as not only how frustrating it is, but how sort of the painstaking the process can be of trying to figure out what kind of allergy it is and finding what works best for them. So I think a lot of them, you know, they've been working with a general practitioner who's been really you know, going hard trying to do their best to, to figure things out and they can be pretty frustrating, uh, especially this time of year. Um, but I feel like the majority of them understand how serious it is just because they're, they're coming through you know, to the specialty clinic uh, with that. But I think they don't, may not understand how 
long of a process it might take as far as the full extent of that we may not find the answer or the solution at visit one you know they think well i'm going to come in it's kind of like going bringing your car to the body shop i think they're going to come in find the answer fix it and then never have to see me again so you know, I, I try to <laughs> try to win them over at least the first visit and say, well, we're probably going to be seeing a lot of each other for a while. So yeah. at least, you know, become friendly in that aspect. Good deal. And so uh, to me, again, history is just so important. I go, how important is getting the proper history for owners when dealing with skin issues? History is you know, the cornerstone of us trying to figure out, I would say even above all other specialties, you know, I feel like a lot of things, whether it's ophthalmology or surgery, and you sort of walk in and what you have is right in front of you versus with, with allergies. I might even have a dog that comes in and has zero skin lesions. You know, you look them over, if they were a stray dog off the street, you may know nothing about them and say, it looks like a healthy dog. But then you'll ask an owner and they'll say, well, my dog scratches incessantly, like overnight. I can't sleep. My dog can't sleep. And, you know, trying to figure out is this seasonal or non-seasonal? Is this something that's been going on every single day for three years? Or is this something that just pops up in the summer? So all of that information is so vital in understanding, you know, do we do a food allergy trial? Do we do interdermal testing if this is something maybe there was some travel history where this dog has had zero skin lesions its whole life it's a 10 year old dog and it goes to you know it goes camping and has access to a lot of wildlife and all of a sudden is incessantly itchy and say well maybe this is scabies so it helps us just really formulate what we call differential diagnoses and, and figuring out what are some of the more probable things that we could work on and, and kind of streamline what our approach is with everything so history and, and the reason why our, our um you know, our exam times are longer. You think about in general practice, you're maybe 20 or 30 minutes at most. Our first appointments are like an hour, sometimes an hour and 15 minutes. A lot of it is just talking about historically what's happened and then sort of what's, what our plans are for the future. So yeah, history is, is so we even have a history form that they fill out before they even come in so we can read through all that. Excellent. Excellent. And so again, to me, you are seeing owners with pets that have been dealing with like skin issues for years. Uh, I guess it was just so tough for me. And then uh, their skin is like as thick as like an elephant. And then like you see these golden retrievers or something that just like, they look like these tiny crested dogs. They get they just yeah. no fur. All right. Yeah, and then they're, 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 they're just wanting a magic pill. How do you get them to understand that this is going to be a process? Yeah, I, I had a mentor once that called this whole process sort of like peeling back the layers of an onion. Again, that it's not a one-time just walk in, here's the solution. You know, try to go over with them that there are so many confounding factors with allergies. You not only have the allergy itself, but you may have some dogs that also have parasites on top of it. You may have dogs, like you mentioned earlier about resistant infections. I would say probably half of the dogs that I culture have resistant infections. So they've been through rounds and rounds of antibiotics trying to figure things out. And we really had to try to get to the solution from an antibiotic standpoint by culturing them and figuring that out. So it's, um, and I try to tell them, you know, it's taken them months and years of suffering through this. So hopefully it's not going to take months and years to get to the solution, but it's right. been such a building problem, especially with things like ear disease that have just you know, a lot of chronic changes that happen with the ear. So, you know, I tell them our, our goal is to try to find something that helps their pet live a good quality of life long term, but it may take us a little bit of time to really get all those layers taken care of. Awesome. And yeah. so you said you set aside like an hour, hour and 15 minutes for first time appointments many times? Yeah, yeah. And it's needed. Sometimes we're up to the very, very last second. And then some even after that, it's a lot of it's a lot of discussion. I find there's so much out there in, you know, on, online, just with social media, 
as far as misconceptions. So a lot of it, I feel like I have to debunk a lot of what's what's out there, and, you know, especially in the topic of food. I feel like a whole entire appointment could nice. <laughs> be a discussion of food and what <laughs> foods are best and, and yeah. really what foods are not as, as bad as people think they are. So we really need that time for most of them. And then sometimes you have owners that just sort of take everything you say and don't have a lot of questions. But I find a lot of owners are so into their, they're so invested in their dogs or their cats life they're advocates for them so they really want to do what's best for them and then that amount of time you know is needed to make sure that everything you know all the issues are addressed awesome and so now do you feel that uh again we always see like when we have itchy dogs again they always say like again you know obviously fleas is the number one skin allergy is, is that still the case it is I, I would say right now we have we're living in a world so much different than 20 years ago where you know i was dipping my dog you know, I, I was the, the I remember those. <laughs> I was a dipper. Well, you know, got the hearts dip and then saw them, you know, floating, especially in Florida, seeing so many fleas. Yeah. And now there are so many flea products that sometimes it's even hard to to keep on top of it. So fortunately we live in a world that there's so many options and so many effective and safe options for it. Uh, but still we would say it's the most common allergy. Uh, from a specialty standpoint, a lot of times our general, or most of the time, our general practitioners are doing a phenomenal job with making sure they're on flea preventatives. So by the time they get me, I can kind of cross that off the list and say, but we don't need to go down that route of, of treating it because you're good with your preventatives. But it's still so important. I guess that's my plug. <laughs> and make sure everybody's on, everybody's on that flea prevention just to make sure that we've, you know, because it's a very easy thing to treat. You know, we just kill, kill the fleas and then we don't have to worry about things long term with management. So how do you get owners whose, whose dogs are itching? and are just are not on any medication, any flea medication. Yeah. And yeah. to start to use though medication, even when they are convinced, again, there are no fleas, they've never seen fleas, my dog doesn't have fleas. How do you yep. convince them to just at least use it? You know? Yeah. And so that's a great question. I would say the hardest owners, and no offense, I mean, I'm a cat owner myself, but the hardest owners to convince a lot of times are cat owners, uh, not because they you know, or a different type of person, but just, you know, they say my, my cat lives indoor all the time. They never even step foot outside. You know, if I did that, then my cat would never come back. So we always make sure that he or she's inside all the time. And those are the ones that are really hard to convince. Um, we know that fleas can live inside. We know that they can, you know, track in various ways. And, and, and I, I tell them it's a very, like I just said, it's, it's a very simple thing to treat. If we think about all the types of allergies, you know, big categories, flea allergy, food allergy, environmental allergy, environmental allergy. If we think about allergies in general, avoidance is the key. So you can't really avoid trees and grasses and molds. You can avoid food ingredients and you can definitely avoid fleas by just making sure they don't even exist. So I've had plenty of cats that we haven't even had to go down the whole allergy workup and, and take time and money on skin testing and all that if we've simply just treated for fleas. So I tell people that it's a very simple answer and it's also probably the cheapest answer as far as this. if that's the only issue going on, then we can you know save them a lot of time and frustration by just sticking with the basics. So. Awesome. Awesome. Uh, why do you feel there are so many allergies? I mean, I don't know if this is a question, <laughs> a good question that you could answer, but like, why do you feel like you see yeah. so many allergies? Like, why are there so many allergies in pets? Yeah, it's a million dollar question. I have a lot of people, <laughs> a lot of people ask me that. And I think there's, um, you know, they've tried to look back, especially in the, the human side of <laughs> things where, um, you know, we, we consider what sort of environmental and genetic factors. I think it's, it's definitely what we call multifactorial. So there's not just one, one thing that's really contributing to it we know it's an immune system issue where there's you know inappropriate responses to certain stimulus and then we know that there's a skin barrier issue where the skin itself is not protecting all those sort of outside things like pollens uh, and in humans they found 
you know, things like smog or, you know, living in an industrial area might, you know, predispose you to that or what your, your long-term exposure to house dust mites and that kind of a thing. So I think that there's genetics as far as breeding and, you know, I don't want to go into, you know, as far as breeding practices and that go, but I think that there's some probably issues there combined with what, you know, environment, or if you think about, you know, the dogs that used to just be outside all the time, there's a, this thing called hygiene hypothesis as well, where your, your immune system is built to react to so many things good or bad and your immune system especially early on in life is needs to be trained to know what is an appropriate response to something that's benign and what's a, a, an appropriate response to something that's bad and going to cause issues so there's some thought even in the the human side of things you know if this farm-raised child that's out there and maybe not washing their hands or you know putting purell on i know this is kind of a hard time yeah. <laughs> right now with the <laughs> pandemic to talk about hygiene but um but there's some thought you know with that whole pandemic aside i mean there's some thought that having that sort of low level of microbe exposure sort of trains your immune system so it knows how to react versus if you're never exposed to anything at all your immune system doesn't know oh, this is four and i got to really mount a, a huge response to it so if you think about it now you know our dogs aren't just in the backyard all all day and all night most people have them inside and <clears throat> they're not exposed to all of those things so it, it, we could probably spend an hour talking about all the, the nitty-gritty stuff but i think a lot of it comes to just sort of lifestyle now uh and a lot of genetic factors yeah no it, again that is just yeah it's so tough to you know to yeah. tell them so what are yeah. you, what are some other, again, we have fleas is number one. So mm -hmm. what are the other, I guess, top five or three, whatever you feel like, what are the other ones that we're seeing as far as the most, the top causes for skin allergies? So as far as causes go, and what I, like I said, most of the time when I see patients already on adequate preventative, so what we end up talking about, I, I break it into two main categories. So one would be food allergy. And the other one, I call it environmental allergy, sort of for the layperson. The, the medical term is atopy or atopic dermatitis. Uh, and that, that covers sort of an umbrella of, of issues. So that could be uh, anything that's pollinating outside, grasses, trees, weeds. It can also be indoor molds, house dust, house dust mites, danders, and that type of thing. So to try to simplify it, you know, I, I put it into those two main categories. It's rarer for us to see things like contact hypersensitivity, you know, certain ingredients, you know, a lot of owners will ask, well, is it the laundry detergent? Is it the fabric softener? Um, you know, we put fertilizer outside, is that it? And, and I tell people anything could potentially be an allergen, but, but more often than not, it tends to be food or something that's just naturally in the environment. Okay, good. Yeah. Very good. And so what are the, uh, so now that when we, you get a pet, like there's different like types of uh, allergy testing, what are the mm -hmm. different types um, that you use maybe, or what do you feel is the best one? Oh, that's good. That's a million dollar, million dollar question too. Cause I would say it's not too uncommon that people think, well, you know, I hear there's blood testing. So let me just go to the vet. I'll you know, draw blood, it'll be an easy visit, and then they'll send it out and we'll have all our answers there. Allergies, unfortunately, after all of this time of us studying them, they're still not a quick and easy bedside test to just run and screen and say, well, this is, this is exactly what's wrong with your pet. It is, uh, again, going back to history, and history is an important part of it, uh, response to certain therapies, and also just the disease of rule out. So first, we talk about those layers and we make sure parasites aren't an issue or on good parasite control. Uh, if it's a year round issue, then we always do our food trial to root out, rule out food allergies. And then from there, and that is a test, you know, people think, well, I'm just feeding my dog a food. Um, you know, doing that prescription diet for, you know, strictly for an eight week period is how we really test for food allergies. And then when we talk about environmental allergies, we have blood tests uh, that we'll use and, 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 and skin tests just like in humans. Um, so we clip 
up an area of hair on their body and then do, you know, in our practice, about 70 different injections of all the different kinds of environmental factors and, and use that as a guide to know what we would desensitize them to. So a lot of, like I mentioned before, a lot of our appointment is sometimes trying to debunk a lot of the myths about how much, you know, there's actually hair tests <laughs> that you can do online. Um, by the way, they're, they're all, uh, they're very expensive and they're completely inaccurate. But they're <laughs> awesome. Stupid. Well, they've actually, they've actually found there were some colleagues that took, uh, that sent some uh, samples in and sort of said that they were from an animal, but they were actually from a stuffed animal. And believe it or not, the stuffed animal had allergies. <clears throat> so I guess, <laughs> so I guess that, you know, it's pervasive throughout even <laughs> real and, and non-real animals. But um, so there's a lot out there. There's even saliva tests that you could, you know, at home, you know, people are trying to say, well, what can I do at home that doesn't involve me going, you know, paying the expense of going to a specialist or going to the vet. So there, there's so much out there. And, and, but really that, that, uh, that true workup that I just mentioned is, is the best way to really hone in on what kind of allergies we're dealing with. Oh, awesome. Yeah. And so what do you, what do you feel? So when you see, <clears throat> cause you mainly see probably the majority of your pets are probably dogs, right? For, for skin allergies right. that you see. And yeah. so uh, like, what is the difference? Cause I know obviously cats do have allergies as well. So what's the difference between mm -hmm. cat and dog allergies? Yeah, it is really interesting. Cats, uh, as probably many of you know, are their own creatures. <laughs> They're not. Mm -hmm. When we're in vet school, you probably remember learning cats are not small dogs. Uh, and and it, at the presentation of allergies is a good testament to that. So in dogs, we're used to, you know, the head shaking, the scratching, the hot spots, the biting and chewing the paws or licking excessively and maybe, you know, scooting our hind end on the carpet. In cats, um, there's sort of three main three main categories you have your head and neck scratchers that they'll just I mean some of them will do it so severely that you know you have to put that dreaded e-collar on them otherwise they'll just tear their skin off um, you also get your over groomers uh, so maybe they don't have any open sores or anything like that they just are constantly licking their belly and owners think well this is something behavioral my cat's stressed uh, and they may not even have any redness or sores they just are over grooming themselves trying to take uh, care of that itchiness and then the other third thing that's really unique to cats something called the eosinophilic granuloma complex. I try to say that five times fast. <laughs> so we, they, um, they can get these uh, open sores, sort of these plaques or nodules on their, their belly. They can, uh, it can affect their upper lip. So it almost looks cancerous, you know, in their mouth. So it's kind of a, a bizarre thing, but it's sort of just a, an infiltration of a lot of these inflammatory cells. Why cats have this happen and dogs don't, we, we don't know. But, but cats are definitely their own unique creature when it comes to allergy presentation. Nice. Nice. Yeah. yeah. Cats are uh, strange creatures. I love them. Yeah. You know, my kitty cat's amazing, but yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> do for you sure. see, do you see other species for allergies? Now I don't, uh, at our practice is pretty much um, all dogs and cats. Uh, I, I don't really see any of the, the small pocket pets, although they have their own fair share of issues as far as rats and hedgehogs and guinea pigs. When I was a resident, we saw a lot more, you know, we would be involved with exotics or we would see maybe once a month, see a horse. Um, if you've ever get a chance to see a skin test in a horse, it's probably the most amazing <laughs> skin test you'll see, um, you know, just because they get really huge, you know, markings on their, you know, where their, their, uh, their positive reactions are. So right now I don't see any other species, but, but that doesn't mean that they don't need their own attention as far as allergies go for sure. Can you describe the, the process for intradermal skin testing? 
Yeah, so for skin testing, again, the, the purpose of it, and I always like to, to make sure owners know really why we're doing it, because it's not just a gee whiz, here's the answer, here are all the results, you know, your dog's allergic to this, you know, Timothy grass and alfalfa and this tree and this weed. In a realistic situation, you're not going to be able to keep your dog away from all of these. Like I mentioned before, avoidance is the key to preventing any of these allergic flares. So the purpose of the test is to say, well, if we can't avoid it, but we can maybe desensitize our immune system to these potential allergens. And how do we know how we can more specifically do that? So the skin test is meant to say, here's your custom made vaccine based on your allergy profile. And so once we've gone through all that workup of making sure it's not food allergy, making sure parasites are controlled, uh, we make sure that they don't have any antihistamines on board. There aren't any you know, steroids or steroid injections because those can affect the test. So once all of that has been <clears throat> approached, um, <clears throat> excuse me, they're given a little bit of a sedation just so that they're not moving and, and jerking. It's not a painful process, but if you can imagine, you have to do, like I said, about 70 different injections in a grid. Um, you know, we clip the side of them. They're, they're laying down. They're very calm and quiet, and, and we do about 70 different injections. Um, we'd use a Sharpie pen to denote, you know, each little dot. Uh, and so then we look at those, and they correspond with um, a specific grass, a specific tree, um, we'll do house dust and house dust mites, various insects. Um, and so we read the test about, you know, five to 10 minutes, sometimes 15 minutes after we do it. Uh, uh, and then I usually print off the results. So we find out the results the same day. It's not like they have to come back in a day to, to look at it. So it's more of an immediate kind of test versus a blood test. You send that out and it may take a week to get that back. Oh, good deal. Yeah. <clears throat> uh, how do you guys approach uh, when you see a young pet with coming in with allergies versus older pets uh, with allergies? Well, I'm always, I get excited when I see the younger pets because I think it tells me two things. One, that, you know, they, they probably have a great general practitioner who's referred them early. You know, mm -hmm. when I get some of these dogs that come in and they're 10 or 12 years old and the owners are like, well, if I would have known you existed as a specialty, I would have been here, you know, day one or, you know, the first mm -hmm. time there was a hot spot. So uh, it, it makes me happy that that discussion has happened with them. Um, and then the other thing is when we talk about immunotherapy, where we try to desensitize them, that's even the, the best stage to, to have that discussion and to start immunotherapy because we feel like they're probably going to to uh, have more benefit from that type of therapy of desensitization earlier on versus if you're a dog that maybe only has one or two more years left on them, it may not be worth going through that. So with the younger dogs, you know, we definitely, especially if they're less than a year of age, we talk more about ruling out food just because we can see food allergies in really young dogs. Uh, we can see them in middle-aged dogs or older dogs. We typically go through that, still ruling out parasites, doing our food trial. Uh, and then from that food trial, if it doesn't seem like it's helping at all, then we talk more about doing the, the immunotherapy, their allergy vaccine. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. So what, what's, what, what are some of your most challenging allergy-related cases that you feel that you've seen? The most challenging ones, I would say, are cats uh, recently <laughs> have been very challenging. I don't know if it's just sort of that rule in veterinary medicine, everything seems to come in, <laughs> in waves or you come in threes. Uh, cats are very challenging because of, of having, needing to medicate them, and they're not always the best that I'm sure all the cat owners out there can realize or, or can uh, commiserate there as far as having to get pills down them and that sort of thing. Something that works really well with dogs may not work well with cats. So I think a lot of the cat patients more recently have been challenging um, or to do a diet trial. Some cats can be very picky with things. Uh, on the dog side of things, it, it seems like the, the most challenging ones are the ones that are battling with 
resistant infections of the skin. So uh, similar to MRSA in humans, we have something called MRSP. Uh, and we can see it in dogs that have been on chronic antibiotics. Maybe we haven't really gotten to the root of their allergy and they're sort of going through that cycle over and over and over again, getting infections, getting back on antibiotics. And over time, they may develop resistance. And those are the most challenging ones because we may be left with not a whole lot of options to treat them with to treat their infection. Right. What yeah. do you see as, um, as far as like the most common like comorbidities that you see that go along with allergies? And, you know, how's that challenging? Yeah, with the comorbidities. The comorbidities, I guess I would say, um, you know, the, the infection uh, would be a huge issue, even with yeast infections as well. Um, other comorbidities, uh, if we have some dogs with, um, you know, let's say they have arthritis or they're older dogs that are on a lot of medications, uh, can, can be challenging if we need to use things like steroids because you want to use them, you know, with caution in some of those cases. So um, I would say with a lot of the older patients, it tends to be more of the, the chronic changes like arthritis would be, would be one I think of. Yeah. 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 And so when you're seeing a lot of these owners and they have um, some owners have like physical uh, inabilities to, to mm -hmm. like, you know, bathe their pets or you get an owner who's unable to touch their pet's ears. How do you yeah. manage around that? Because it's, again, I know topicals and things like that are extremely necessary to try to mm -hmm. control some of these allergies. How do you get around some of those? Well, the good thing is nowadays, I mean, bathing is a huge part of uh, managing, especially the allergic patient. Obviously we're not bathing cats as much for bathing dogs a lot more. The good thing is the companies have made a lot of different variations of topicals. So we have mousse products, we have wipes, uh, there are sprays. Uh, there are a lot of options to where if you can't physically, because we do have older clients that whether they don't feel comfortable, either, you know, they have this huge dog. Um, we have actually a huge uh, Akita uh, patient, very dedicated owner. She would do anything and everything yeah. for her dog, but she cannot physically lift her dog you know, a 60 year old woman can't lift this, you know, hundred some odd pound dog into a tub. So uh, with that dog in particular, we say, you know, instead of me just sending a bunch of things home and assuming that everybody can do them, I make that a part of the conversation and say, we really, your, your dog can benefit from topicals. Here are some of the options. What do you feel like you're going to be able to accomplish at home? You know, I try to set them up for success instead of making them spend so much money on a product that's just going to sit on their, on their right. counter and not ever use it. So I talk to them about the different options, you know, besides bathing, you know, bathing is always a great thing to do, but, but we have some other disinfectants and therapies topically that can be used. As far as the ears go, uh, ears can be very challenging with a lot of dogs. It seems like really trying to take care of the pain aspect of it can help. So that's where things like steroids or even uh, oral pain medications like gabapentin can help with ear pain. And I find if I'm able to at least sort of start treating that way before they even go home and start putting medications in the ear, say, well, let's just start with addressing the pain and inflammation so that when you have to go and, and apply things in the ear, it's a little bit better. Um, there are owners that um, you know, are comfortable with putting muzzles on their dogs and, and they sort of make it, you know, they put positive reinforcement with it, you know, there's nice. treats involved and they do it more for their safety versus, you know, punishing their dog with it. Uh, and then we do have a few products now that are out that uh, are labeled for long acting treatment for the ears. Um, people will ask me that too, since we see so many ears, what are my thoughts on products? I, I don't know if I can name drop products on the show, but, <laughs> uh, yeah, but anyways, there are certain products. Absolutely oh, okay. So the products like Claro and Ocerny, I think were great for those 
maybe more simple infections, not those end stage ears where they're you know, completely shut down, they may not work as well. But I've had you know, methicillin resistant staph infections respond beautifully to those. Um, so I think they do have their, their place. And um, I think that those can be a nice option for owners that either don't feel comfortable with putting things in their dog's ear, or let's say, again, they're, they're an owner that would jump a mile if you say jump a little bit they'll jump a mile and they'll do anything but they just physically can't and so some of those products that are available now can help out with that awesome awesome and again and so when you see these uh these clients that have these recurrent um like methicillin resistant staph infections uh how do you uh discuss with them that again like you know you know well how did it get it we weren't really itching or you know how did we get it and, and why do you have to reculture every time you know we get these things what do you how do you approach that with owners yeah, there's, with the methicillin resistant staff issue, it's, uh, and another thing that we have to do a lot of education, I try not to, I try to tell people, you know, it's not a flesh-eating bacteria, it's not something that's so contagious that, you know, you're going to have to be hospitalized just for even being in the same room with the dog, but in the same light, I have to make sure that there is, a, there is a level of seriousness with it, we want to make sure we're not, uh, allowing other dogs in the house to lick the wounds. If you have an immune compromised person in the house, it's ideal that they're not having as much direct contact with them. So there's a low level of um, a potential for it to spread to humans. So it's enough for us to make sure we're educating them. And then as far as rechecks go, of all the, the dogs that need really close rechecks or cats, we don't see it as much in cats, but in dogs especially, having those rechecks to make sure we're on the right track. Um, we don't always have to, to reculture at subsequent visits if it's you know within the course of treatment, unless it's all of a sudden, well, this drug was working and now this antibiotic isn't. Um, but that's part of where we're, those rechecks really help us monitor how how well we're, we're responding. So um, it, it, that's probably one of the most frustrating things about yeah. uh, dermatology is the whole uh, resistant infection. Those bacteria are trying to outsmart us every day. So yeah. Well, again, uh, Andrew, you have been absolutely amazing. Uh, again, you've been a blessing at VCA and we mm -hmm. cannot tell you how thankful uh, we are to be able to obviously consult with you, refer uh, clients to you, uh, again, you've done just an amazing job and all the clients that I've referred to, you can absolutely love you. And obviously you can see again, just how well you're able to explain all these things and, and break everything down for owners and just again, in a really amazing way. And you really connect with clients. So again, you do just, like I said, you did an amazing job. Uh, and again, um, and, and so again, I promise I won't follow you. All right. To VCA and become a dermatologist. All right. That's all right. <laughs> you're more than welcome. The more the merrier. Yeah. Good, man. Uh, I really appreciate, really appreciate it, Andrew. Thank you so much for, for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Have a good one. When we get back, we'll reveal our product of the week. Stick around. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. The Vet Bros Pet Education Charitable Fund is a 501c3 organization created by Dr. Mondrian Contreras. Dr. Contreras had twin boys early in his vet school education. He often had to study with his children, which led to their love for animals and desire to help educate others about pets. The Vet Bros Pet Education Charitable Fund stems from this love of animals and education. 
The VetBros Pet Education Charitable Fund's mission is to help educate children and young adults about how to best care for their pets and to help them fulfill their dreams of becoming veterinarians, animal advocates, and animal healthcare professionals. This organization helps provide scholarship money as well as educational seminars to help individuals realize their dreams. The VetPros Pet Education Charitable Fund also provides financial assistance towards health care for pets in families experiencing various hardships such as bankruptcy and unemployment or natural disasters such as flooding, tornado, or fire. Please visit our website, vetbrospeteducation.org, and consider making a donation to our cause. The future of online TV is here. View exclusive content from your favorite talk radio hosts and new programs that you can't see anywhere else. Visit voiceamerica.tv today. You are tuned in to Healthy Tales with Dr. Mondrian Contreras. We'd love to hear from you on our program today. Please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to vetbrospeteducationcf at gmail.com. Now back to Healthy Tales. Welcome back to Healthy Tales. It's time for our product of the week. We have over 1 million dogs and cats in this country. Pets are considered part of the family. Many of them go on vacation with us, sleep in our rooms, celebrate birthdays, drink puppuccinos, and get gifts for the holidays. However, it only takes a second for a door or window to be left open, for a pet to get off a leash, and get lost. A family pet goes missing every seven seconds in this country. And the concern is that the number of owned and missing pets that have been put down because an owner couldn't be found is absolutely heartbreaking. But what is incredible is that these stories of lost pets are becoming more rare and reconnecting pets with their owners is becoming more common. This is all thanks to this week's incredible life-saving product, the microchip. Microchip is a small electronic chip in the small glass cylinder that is about the size of a piece of rice. It only contains an identification number and nothing else. So the number is linked to an account with stored registration information which needs to be accurate and up-to-date. The microchip is inserted in the skin using a hypodermic needle. I personally prefer pets to be sedated when we give them a microchip, just because the needle is pretty big. But they don't have to be sedated. And I have microchipped a significant number of cats and dogs who are awake. The other great thing about this product is that it's extremely safe. A study done on 4 million pets that had been microchipped showed very few adverse reactions. Of the 4 million pets, only 391 had a known reaction, and most of them were that the microchip had migrated, which, is that really considered an adverse reaction? So if you have your pet chipped and registered and he or she gets lost, then any shelter or veterinary clinic will be able to scan for a chip. And with that information, they'll be able to look up in the registry and find the owner's information to reunite them with their pet. It's still extremely important to have a good identification collar on your pet. Microchip and ID collars are both things that complement each other. 10 million pets are lost every year in this country, which is devastating for families. There was a study that came out in JAFMA in 2009 that showed of the 7,700 stray animals at an animal shelter, only 21.9% of those pets that did not have a chip were reunited with their owner. But, but 52.5% of the dogs that did have a microchip were reunited with their owners. And for cats, the statistics were even more significant. For cats, 
it was only 1.8% without a microchip were reunited with their owners versus 38.5% of the cats with a microchip were reunited with their owners. Another big takeaway from this study was that of the microchip pets that were not reunited with their owners, it was mostly due to incorrect information in the registration or they were not even registered. Registration is extremely important because if you go to the length of getting a microchip, there's really nothing else you need to do other than register it. This is what you do. Once your pet is chipped, register the microchip and put in all the proper information. Then make sure your veterinarian scans your pet's microchip at every annual exam visit so we can make sure it's working properly. Then make sure your veterinarian scans your pet's microchip at every annual exam visit so we can make sure it's working normally. Last, please make sure if any of your information ever changes, be sure you update the registration information so your pet can be reunited with you. To review, one, get your pet microchipped at your vet. Two, register your pet's microchip. Three, update your registration information and have the chip checked annually. There are some really amazing microchip reuniting stories showing pets that have been located in several states away and still have been reunited with their owners. Make sure you are keeping your information up to date. One of the most devastating things that can happen is when a lost microchip pet gets found and the chip is checked, but there's no way to get a hold of the owner because they've never updated their information. So let's make sure everyone knows how amazing this product can be in helping keep family members together and prevent more pets from showing up in shelters. Talk to your vet about getting your pet microchipped. Thank you so much for listening today. I wanna to thank all of our amazing Healthy Tales listeners for all the amazing support that you guys have given us over these first few shows. If you wanna contact me, Dr. Contreras, directly, you can contact me at vetbrospeteducationcf at gmail.com. Special thanks to my amazing co-hosts, Elaine, Robbie, and Tim, and to my expert guest, Dr. Andrew Simpson. We hope you join us for our next episode, where we give you more great tips and help you unleash your pet parenting power. Thank you for listening to Healthy Tales. Please join your host, Dr. Mondrian Contreras, for another edition of the program next Wednesday at 6 a.m. Pacific Time, 9 a.m. Eastern Time, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Here's wishing better health for you and your pet.